Well, let us return then to these verses we read in Luke's Gospel, chapter 18. And the focus of our meditation tonight will be on verses 24 to 30, which we read earlier. So our text is really Luke chapter 18 and verses 24 to 30. And we really have here the aftermath of the incident when the rich young ruler came forward so promisingly before the Lord Jesus Christ, asking basically the way of salvation, the way of eternal life. And when the Lord Jesus Christ laid down to him the terms of discipleship, we are distinctly told, not so much in Luke, but in the other gospel records, that this man went away. Mark will tell us in chapter 10, verse 22, he went away grieved. And in Matthew chapter 19, the same incident in verse 22, we are told again, he went away sorrowful. And there are three things that I would like to highlight with you from the aftermath of this incident with Jesus and the rich young ruler. If you're looking for a particular text or a title for the, uh, the sermon this evening, it will be the words of the disciples. Who then can be saved? Who then can be saved? And seeking and relying upon the Lord's blessing, we want to meditate profitably upon these verses this evening. The first thing then, we have here Christ's observation. Christ's observation. What do we find there in verse 23, which, we did, which we, is not part of our text, but what do we find? And when he heard this, he was very sorrowful, for he was very rich. And when Jesus saw that he was very sorrowful, Jesus observed this young man. This young man didn't say anything to the Lord Jesus. Christ, delivering the word of God to him in faithfulness, truth, and honesty. The Lord Jesus Christ, as we would notice, highlighted this man's pet sin. This man loved his possessions. He loved his money. He loved these things more than eternal life. And he showed it by his actions. As I have already quoted to you from the other Gospels, he left without saying a word. When he came to this crossroads in his life, as many people do, they will come to a crossroads. And we're not talking here about decisionalism. There are people who will tell us that we can decide to be born again. And they get all kind of confused between regeneration and conversion. We're not going to go into that at the moment. But this man here came to a crossroads in his life. And he was faced with eternal realities. 
And he had a choice. What was he going to do? The claims of discipleship were made crystal clear to this young man. Give up your possessions, sell them, and give the money to the poor, and come follow me, and then you will have eternal life. If you really want it, this is the way to have it. And of course, Jesus was highlighting his pet sin. And you know, of course, as we looked last week, he was not prepared to give up his pet sin. There are one or two lessons that we can learn even in this first heading. One sin, or maybe I should more accurately say, one darling sin, one pet sin, will deprive us of heaven. That doesn't mean to say, friends, that if we fall into sin, if we have a sin that tends to take us down and catch us out, the minister's not saying that. But if we want to follow the Lord Jesus Christ and we're not prepared to fight against our darling sin or sins, then we're not on the road that leads to life. We must be prepared to give up everything for him. And that includes our darling sin or sins. You will know your predicament as I know my predicament. But the way of eternal life is before us. This man's sin was his possessions. Your sin may be something different. My sin, my pet sin, my darling sin will be different or may be different. But it doesn't matter if we're to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the terms of discipleship. We must be prepared to give up our darling sin or sins. It wasn't that long ago on the, the Lord's Day morning that we focused on Herod. Now we might think about Herod. And we might not think much about him. He was a cruel ruler. An ungodly ruler. But the Bible tells us he did much. He used to listen to John the Baptist and he did many things. But he would not give up Herodias. That was his pet sin. Uncleanness. And this was this man's darling sin. He cherished his possessions. He was an idolater. He broke the first commandment. And as the Bible will teach us, if we break one commandment, we've broken them all. But nevertheless, that was his dominant sin. That was the one that mastered him. And if we are going to successfully follow the Lord Jesus Christ, we must be prepared to give up every sin. Everyone. It will be a struggle. It will be a fight. It will be a fight until we pass into glory. But that fight must go on. And this must be our attitude. They must go. We must crucify the flesh. We must crucify our sins. We must kill them or sin will kill us. This is what the Bible would teach us. And there can be no compromise. 
what we would also notice when we look at this heading of Christ's observation. Do you know he didn't run after this man? Jesus delivered, if you like, his sermon. And you know, of course, he was the greatest preacher that ever lived. He was the one who cried over Jerusalem. And he was the one who was able to <coughs> bring the gospel with all its purity and all its power. And here he was to this young man who he looked upon and loved him. Yet, when this young man walked away without saying a word, but obviously turning his back upon Jesus Christ, what happened? Did Jesus run after him? No. Did, he, did Jesus say to him, let's come and negotiate? Let's come and sit down and think about this? Did Jesus present another position to him? Another gospel to him? I'm not for one moment saying it was a, a take-it-or-leave-it scenario. I'm not saying that for one moment. Because we know that love was oozing out of the Savior, but he wasn't going to compromise the gospel. He wasn't going to compromise what it meant to follow him. And he wasn't going to change the terms of discipleship. It was laid clear before him, as it is to every one of us, the Lord Jesus Christ will receive us. We can be assured of that. He calls us in the gospel. As ministers are bidden to do, he calls us, come unto me. Look unto me, he says, and be ye saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is none else. That's a glorious, wonderful Old Testament gospel invitation that he issues to us all. Come, he says. But you'll come on my terms. There's no room for negotiation. And is it not marvelous? Is it not tremendous when we consider we are the ones who has offended God? Yet God is the one who has worked out a way of salvation. God has taken the initiative. God sent his son. We might reverently say, God has done everything that he can. His love is clear. It's crystal clear. It's for everyone to see. He sent his son. His son came he condescended. The Creator became a creature. He became just like us. He didn't come as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He came as a, as a servant. He came the lowest of the low. Why did he do it? What motivated him? It was love for his people, love for mankind. And do you think then that God is going to change the, the terms and the way of salvation for you? How shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? This is great salvation. 
in the Old Testament, that deliverance that Moses brought about by God when he delivered the people from Egypt and brought them into the promised land, or Joshua brought them into the promised land. That was a glorious salvation to take two million people out of Egypt and to lead them in the wilderness for 40 years and then ultimately to bring them into the promised land where they overcame their enemies and they were established and settled. That was a glorious, wonderful salvation. But it's only a picture of what it's like to be saved from the thraldom of sin, to have our sins forgiven and to be reconciled to God and to be brought into the heavenly promised land. It's no light matter, as we shall see later on, friends. It is the power of God. Far more power was exercised in the salvation of sinners than God has ever exercised in anything else that he's done in this world. And do you think God is going to change it? Is he going to negotiate different terms for you? No. What an insult. God has laid bare his holy arm. And we see the glory and the wonder of God and where his attributes have been satisfied in the cross. There we see the love of God. And there we see the wrath of God. And we see many other things there. God will not change then, friends. You must humble yourselves. If you're going to be saved, it's going to be on his terms. There's no other gospel, no opportunity to negotiate, none whatsoever. It's his way or no way. And amongst men, we don't like someone who would take the attitude, it's my way or no way. Well, as far as our salvation is concerned, that is the way with God. It's his way or no way. We would also notice that here this young man began to realize something about himself. We spoke about this last week. We're not going to highlight it anymore concerning him. But he came to the realization that however important eternal life was to him, his possessions were more important. He learned something about himself. This is what every one of us needs to realize. We need to accurately assess ourselves. Self-knowledge is vitally important. We cannot know ourselves enough. Now I'm not talking about priding ourselves. I'm not talking about gloating in ourselves. But one thing that's absolutely essential for salvation is that we must know ourselves. We must know what we truly are, particularly in the sight of God. We are all inclined to think too highly of ourselves. 
And this is certainly the position of those outside of the church and who never come to the house of God. And when you try to engage them in any kind of spiritual conversation and when you try to present the claims of Christ to them who are ignorant of God and of his law, they will say, if they don't say it with their mouths, they certainly say it by their behavior, we don't need the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm not a sinner. They don't recognize their need. And this man was exactly the same. He didn't realize his true position. And maybe there are some here sitting or some hearing by other means who are in the same position. Many people who come to the house of God and even are under the means of grace, they still are ignorant of their true position before God. And this man was oblivious to this pet, this darling sin, the sin that would damn him for all eternity. He wasn't aware of it. That's why we must continue to proclaim the law of God. We proclaim the law of God not because the law can save us. We don't encourage people to take up the law and obey it in order that they might earn points with God and in order that God might show them favor. No, we press the law of God upon men and women that they might recognize that they've broken the law of God, that they might see that they're ones who deserve nothing but God's wrath and curse because of their behavior that they might begin to understand how God sees them. And that's what matters. It's not what the minister thinks about you. It's not what the elders think about you that matters. It's not what your neighbors think about you. It is how you will stand before God. And the only way to stand before God successfully, we might say, is to have the righteousness of Christ imputed to us. You see, our own righteousness is nothing but filthy rags. And we dare not stand before him in a state of nature. This man here began to see himself. We need to begin to see ourselves. Otherwise, you'll never prize the Lord Jesus You'll never see the beauty. People look at the cross and what do they see? Oh, is it not ugly? Isn't God a tyrant that he would punish his son in such a manner? But the Christian whose eyes have been opened, his understanding has been opened, they go to the cross. What do they see? They see the wonder and the beauty of Christ. They see that sacrifice for sin. They see their sin has been paid for. They see it's all been accomplished by the Lamb of God who taketh away the sins of the world. And they see themselves by contrast. They're like Paul, woe is me. I'm, a, I'm undone, I'm unclean. Is that not what he says or words to that effect? Or is it Job who says it? Woe is me. Vile I am. 
Do we recognize that, friends? Is this something that we can say amen to, however unpleasant it may be for us? Or are we still gloating in our self-righteousness? That terrible sin that clings to all of us, all of the family of Adam, we're all inclined to think far too highly of ourselves. Self-knowledge. Not pride, but real knowledge. How are we to obtain it? Well, we study the Word of God, but we study the, the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. We look at Him, and when we consider Him, and we consider His work, and what He has undertaken, and His life, when we compare it with that, it causes us to repent in dust and ashes. And we delight in the glory of Jesus Christ. Second thing we might notice is Christ's statement in verses 24 and 25. When Jesus saw that he was very sorrowful, he said, How hardly shall they that have riches enter into the kingdom of God? For it is easier for a camel to go through a needle's eye than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. What is this statement telling us? Well, basically, friends, it's telling us quite clearly in language that we cannot dispute and we're not to be confused over true Biblical salvation is impossible for man to achieve. This is what we're meant to learn here. True biblical salvation. What is biblical salvation? Biblical salvation is to be saved from our sins. Thou shalt call his name Jesus. Why? Because he shall save his people from their sins. That's what salvation is. To be saved from our sins. To be saved from its guilt. And we can remember our days of unbelief. When we carried our guilt with us. And they were not pleasant days. And sometimes that guilt became more obvious than other times. And we can remember days when we would plunge into our lives and we would try to forget about this problem. And yes, we have to acknowledge because of our ignorance, we didn't really understand what this burden was, what this guilt was. It's only when our, our minds have been illuminated that we became to realize that the problem was sin. It was like a heavy baggage that we were carrying about with us everywhere we went. And sometimes it would manifest itself more than others. Sometimes when we were quiet at night or sometimes when we were sick or other times maybe when death visited us, when a, a neighbor was taken away or when a friend was taken away or when a member of the family was taken away, then that, that baggage, that burden became heavy upon us and we didn't really know what it was. But it was guilt and ultimately we did know that this burden was telling us we weren't right with God and we weren't ready for eternity and maybe that's where you are tonight I don't know I can't tell your hearts but if you're not with Christ if Christ has not dealt with your sin you have this baggage you have this guilt and yet 
you might not be aware of it. And that should not surprise you. Why? Because the sinner is dead in trespasses and sins. And he's not aware of these things. And this is part of the self-knowledge. We are to take our knowledge from the Bible, from the Word of God. And if we're still in our sins, we have a heavy baggage upon us that is holding us back. It's bearing down upon us. And yet, you might not be aware of it. Because you're dead. Dead spiritually. But true biblical salvation, friends, is when that burden is lifted. And when that burden is lifted, you'll know it's lifted. There is a lightness about the person. I don't mean levity. There's a difference between lightness and levity. But there's a lightness. There's a bounce in the life. There is life in the life, if you like. There's a transformation. Why? Because that relationship with God has been restored. He now has a living relationship with the living God. His sin has been dealt with. That barrier has been taken away from him. And he's a new man in Christ. And you know it, Christian. I'm only telling you things you already know. This is not news to you. It might be news to the unbeliever. But it's not news to the Christian. Because we know these things. And we are to know them more and more. And is it not wonderful? Can you not say with all the difficulties that we might have in our Christian life and profession, can we not say it's wonderful to be free from the guilt of sin? And as we know, as we are sanctified, we're free from its, from its power. Or we're being made free from its power. Yes, sin still troubles us. And we have to fight against it. But... Blessed be God, it does not have the grip that it once had upon us. Now we fight against it. Before, we didn't fight against it. It never bothered us before. But now it does. True biblical salvation deals with our sin, with our greatest problem. And Jesus is telling us here, as he told the disciples, that this salvation, left to ourselves, is impossible. You cannot achieve it. I cannot achieve it. He particularly mentions a rich man. For it is easier for a camel to go through a needle's eye than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. Why did he say that? Obviously he said that because the young man was a rich man. But it's equally true for a poor man. We might say it's more harder, more difficult, for a rich man to be saved than it is for a poor man. Why? Because the rich man will trust in his riches. The rich man will be wedded to the world more than a poor man may be. That's why. 
And that's why it says in, in 1 Corinthians, not many mighty are called. Not many, but some are. Because, generally speaking, it's a truth that those who are rich and those who have much of, these, of this world's goods are generally not interested in biblical salvation. They love the world. They love their money. They love all that it brings and they're not prepared to part with it. But for us, here tonight, regardless of your financial position, whether you can walk into the bank with your head high, or whether you cannot because of your penury, it is impossible to be saved by your own efforts, by your own achievements. It cannot possibly happen. Thirdly, we would notice that this statement brought about the disciples' amazement, where we get our text here in verse 26. And they heard, and they that heard it said, Who then can be saved? For us to understand their question, we have to get back to their mindset. And basically what they were taught was that a rich person was blessed by God. And therefore, if someone like the rich young ruler, they would automatically assume that this person has the favor and the blessing of God. And a poor person did not. That was the basic theology that the scribes and the Pharisees would be teaching the people. And therefore what Jesus is saying to them was revolutionary. This was turning their teaching upside down. To think that a rich person would not go to heaven was incredible to them. They thought that every rich person was on the way to heaven. For the blessing of God was already upon them. Many people need their theological education turned upside down. Maybe even here. Many people may have to unlearn what they have previously learned and they thought they knew. Who then can be saved? There may well be people here, for instance, who are sitting here and listening to this and they are nodding in approval and they're saying the minister is ticking all the boxes, but there's no urgency for me to close in with Christ. I don't need to worry about this at this moment in time. I can continue with my life and then when it suits me, maybe then I'll begin to seriously consider the claims of Christ. It's impossible to be saved without the help of God. Impossible. Don't dilly-dally over this important matter. Many who have procrastinated 
are in torments today. This young man here went away sorrowful, grieved, we're told, on another occasion. Tonight, he's in torments. He has left all his possessions. Everything. But now he's in torments. He has and he is regretting what happened. Fourthly, we have here Christ's solution, verse 27. The things which are impossible with men are possible with God. Oh, hallelujah, we say. To preach the gospel is one thing, and the minister must preach the gospel. He must set forth Christ clearly and plainly, and with all his energy and enthusiasm and pathos that he can muster, he must call upon people to embrace Christ. He must do that. But God must do something. And this reminds us that the gospel is the power of God. It's not just the, the crucifixion and all that Christ undertook. That indeed displays the wisdom and the power of God. But, you know friends, when the gospel is proclaimed, and when the claims of Christ are pressed upon people, there's a power that's accompanying the preaching of the gospel, a power that is absolutely unique, a power that belongs to God alone. And that power, when it goes forth, will cause the rich man or the poor man to leave everything and follow Christ. Whatever the cost is, he's prepared to do it and undertake it. He will count the cost. And that's where the power of God comes. Because God, by his almighty grace, is able to break open the hardest of hearts. And grace is wonderful and powerful. It will transform even the most hardened criminal and the hardened sinner. Once the power of God goes forth, that heart will open up. And that person will leave the world behind. And that person will take up the cross whether it be a king or whether it be a pauper. And that's the power that we need today. God's power in the gospel. Because the things which are impossible with men are possible with God. This is what drives the, the preachers to the pulpit to preach the gospel. If it was left to us, friends, we would all perish. No matter how good our preaching might be, or no matter how indifferent it might be, it wouldn't matter. It is the power of God that we rely on. And I want to ask you tonight, do you know anything of the power of God? Because if you have the power of God, friends, you will take up that cross, and you will face all kinds of opposition, and you will surrender everything for it. Because Christ is the pearl of great price and you will sell everything to have him. And that's what you must do. And you cannot do it yourself. But it is possible.
with God. Finally, briefly, what have we got here? We have Christ's encouragement. Oh, does he not encourage us, friends? Peter, what does he say? Lo, we have left all and followed thee. And they had. Not absolutely everything. You know, Peter didn't divorce his wife. He still had a wife and he may have had family, we don't know. He, is, he had still domestic responsibilities. But in one real way, he had left everything to follow the Lord Jesus. And so had the others. They had left their occupation. They were fishermen and they gave up everything and they began to follow the Lord Jesus full time. What will happen to us? Jesus tells them, you see there, there is no man that hath left house or parents or brethren or wife or children for the kingdom of God's sake who shall not receive manifold more in this present time. You know, when we read this, we're all inclined to think that Jesus is talking about the life to come. He does mention that, of course. He does. But what he is telling his disciples who in time have left everything to follow him, that in time you will be recompensed. You will be recompensed. We're to look upon this as a, as a spiritual recompense. We're not to think for one moment that all of these things shall be replaced like for like. We're not saying that for one minute. But what Jesus is saying to those, his disciples who have left everything, you will be more than compensated. As one minister used to say, and it sticks in my mind, God is no man's debtor. No man's debtor. If you've left everything for Christ, you will be recompensed. More than recompensed. You will not lose out. You will be given grace. You will be able to put up with trials, persecutions, afflictions. You will gloat in these things. These things will, God will use to further your spiritual progress. You will not lament giving up everything for Christ. That's what he's saying here to encourage us. And yet, of course... And in the world to come, everlasting life. But we know, whoever closes in with Christ now has eternal life. He has it. He will fully enjoy it in the world to come. But as we are warring the good warfare, and as we are following Christ in this life for however long we've got, if we've given up everything for him, he will recompense us. Is this then not a wonderful encouragement to us? Are you still, and I use this in human terms because it's not strictly true, but are you still sitting on the fence? Are you still halting between two opinions? Are you counting the cost? And indeed you should. Because when you embrace Christ, there is a cost. But weigh this all up. 
You'll give up your sins, you'll give up your self-righteousness, and you will be more than recompensed. For God is no man's debtor. Who then can be saved? Only those who come to Jesus Christ on his terms. These are the only ones. Will you be one? Come. Now. Come. Leave your old life behind. And come to the Lord Jesus and be saved for time and for eternity. Amen. And may God be pleased to bless his word to us. Let us pray together.